The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narcanon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven evidence-based step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. Today is episode number 183, and we're still in the midst of this coronavirus. So I hope that you are staying safe and you are staying healthy. I want to reiterate that the addiction pandemic is not going to go away when the coronavirus goes away. So please, if you need help, get it now. If you can do something to help others, please do it now. So today we have an interview. We will be talking to Britt Barker. Britt Barker began his substance addiction in high school and went into college completely unprepared. He had the time of his life performing in bands, but then the consequences began piling up in his 20s. There were legal issues and fractured relationships. In short, life wasn't fun anymore. Barker battled to end his addiction, yet still stood on unstable foundations. He turned to the open arms of his family as his crutch. Their tender yet tough love was available so long as he was willing to change direction. He's been sober since July 18th, 2015. In his words, he had to completely give in to the fact that he would never have the life that he wanted while using substances. Out of the gardens of Greenville, South Carolina, Britt Barker's ashes transform equally to a rising phoenix and rising producer. He overcame his conflicts with substance abuse and in return provides medical and physical support for current addicts. His debut EP, Trust, under the alias Catch the Rise, is an outline journey on his path to recovery. His music is a solid reflection of the trust he has instilled within himself. Without further ado, let's talk to Britt Barker. Britt, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story on the podcast today. We know that all of the stories that um, people such as yourself share resonate with our listeners and we always feel if one person can relate to your story and go out and get help and get better then it's all worth it so thank you for being with us today yes ma'am it's a pleasure to be here awesome so the way i usually start is how you tell me how did your story start how did you get started um on drugs and or alcohol how did that start for you um i was always very uh, curious as a kid. I was very interested in in novelty and new experiences and novel experiences. So I would always kind of push the boundaries of what was allowable, you know, what might get me in trouble or whatnot. And I remember I was probably maybe 14, 15, 16. I remember getting into my parents' liquor cabinet because that was the next novel thing to try and they were gone and I poured a bunch of vodka in a cup with orange juice and chugged two of those and had the time of my life for 45 minutes and then I got really sick (laughs) and and of course the way that my brain is wired um, I never really forgot those 45 minutes and that's all I really remembered was that magical spiritual kind of wow like i've found kind of what makes me feel at one with the universe or whatever and that's all i remembered i didn't remember being really sick and almost getting in a lot of trouble and all that stuff so i just became kind of a weekend um drinker in in high school and stuff like that i i started using um marijuana my senior year i was you know 18 and really into music so I would play with some older people in in bands and stuff like that. And, you know, the marijuana would be there and it would kind of go hand in hand. But, you know, my, my 
you know, disease, it, it, it progressed as a kind of a slow, a slower arc. Okay. And, you know, I tried to go to college right out of high school because it's not, <clears throat> I didn't really know of another alternative that just kind of seemed like what everybody was supposed to do. This is, you know, early 2000s. And I just, when I got there, I felt, you know, pretty lost. My dad was, he worked at the university that I was at, at Clemson University. He was actually the president there. Did he, and, did your parents just to, sorry to cut you off, but did your parents have any idea of what was going on with you? Um, the drinking and such, did they know? Did they object or? Yeah, they will. They definitely objected. Um, but I don't think they knew. I was really good at kind of maneuvering my way around, you know, manipulating um, and kind of being deceptive. And, you know, what we were doing early on in, in high school and stuff, I don't think it was really that far out of line, you know, out, out of the normal realm of behavior for young people. Yeah. Uh, so they might have been aware that those kind of things were going on. But um, like I said, I was really good at hiding it. <laughs> Right. You know, it's interesting, uh, just an editorial comment. I remember when I was young and I was in high school, I mean, you tried alcohol, that's what you did. But I also remember the guy who would get so wasted every Friday night to where he was puking in the bushes. And I, I just, you know, and I remember every week, you know, he'd say, I'm never going to do this again. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sick. And just, you know, next Friday, same old, same old. Just, I don't know why I brought that up, but you made me think of it because, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Back to no, your story. I, I, think <laughs> I, was, I think I was that guy uh, a handful of times, you know but there was a lot of those guys kind of running around and some of them were my friends <laughs> who ended up growing being up being great people when they got older. But um, yeah, I, uh, it wasn't super, you know, problematic. It wasn't, I kind of had sports to ground me and, you know, a pretty good social life and good family life. And um, there were kind of things and, you know, I was involved in, in the church and the youth group. So I had, you know, I had things that were grounding me that, but they were also like in conflict with that other part of me, which, you know, kind of made that dissonant kind of feeling inside. Like I feel, feel, felt guilty and shameful for wanting to do these things and doing these things. But at the same time, you know, wanting to get out and explore and experience life, you know, it created that, that tension, which, you know, can kind of like care, like, lasted with me all the way up until today, you know, I mean, I'm, it's, it's more manageable now, but um, I think a lot of times with substance use and there's, there's so much shame that, that goes around it just for even having the curiosity. And, you know, one thing that I would want to impart on people is that don't be ashamed to have the thoughts and don't be ashamed to, to have the curiosities and don't be ashamed to, to, to talk about it because that way you can possibly get a better understanding of what you might be getting into before you actually get into it. And it's quote unquote too late. I mean, it's never really too late, but, um, but yeah, I just, I think it's, it's, I try to encourage more like open and honest communication about that stuff. I think that, I think that's super important. Um, uh, so often the family of someone who's addicted doesn't feel that they can communicate to anybody about the problem. Mm -hmm. The person addicted doesn't feel that they can really communicate about what's going on with them. So I think that's huge. So back to your story, you're now at Clemson University and your dad just happens to work there <laughs> and take, take us forward from there. Yeah. And, and my family, I, I honestly could not have grown up in a better household. I was, I was loved. All my needs were met, all those kind of things. I mean, it wasn't a perfect situation, but I don't think there is a perfect family situation out there. Um, but I felt like there was a lot of, of pressure 
um, you know, it was more, it was mostly self-imposed, you know, like my brother was, you know, a high achieving person, my mom and dad were, and I felt like, you know, I kind of had to figure out a way to make myself kind of stand out as well. And, you know, this is after years of reflection and therapy and all sorts of kind of work, you know, and looking back, but, uh, I went to college cause I, I wanted to go, I wanted to have the fun experience with my friends and stuff like that. And, but I, I didn't, I was totally unprepared for the actual college collegiate academic part of it. Right. Were you into I, music already? Sorry to interrupt. Were yeah, you into okay. music already? Yeah. I've, I've been playing in bands since I was in fourth grade. Oh, um, wow. So there okay. was always, always music, always <laughs> band. So that was pulling me away from school as well. Okay. Um, I, I looking back on it, I just wish I could have, uh, I would have just been honest saying, Hey, I don't really want to be in college right now, you know? Um, but that's the kind of thing, you know, there's, it's, it's programmed into, into kids that like, this is the path you take. And I would encourage people that's not necessarily the case. Well, and also when your dad is working at the college, I mean, that's kind of a, like a little bit of added pressure, like, yeah, I really should do this. Mm-hmm. And maybe, yeah, and maybe not the easiest thing to communicate that you don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I grew up in the, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you are, but when I grew up, that was the way it was. I'm a baby boomer. So it was like, you went to high school, you went to college, you got married, you had kids, that was it. And, and I remember my parents you know, I, I think I did a year of college and got into drama and I didn't really want to do it anymore. And I remember it was, to, I think till my mother passed away, it was like, she wished I'd had had a college degree. Just one of those things. So I would imagine that with your, your dad working for the college, there was just that, just that a little bit additional pressure of like, you really ought to go to college. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he was the president at, at yeah. Clemson. So yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> It was that, yeah, that feeling times a hundred. Um, but like I said, there was really no, no pressure from my parents or anything like that. Like, you know, they, they were great about that. And I'm sure they were aware of it and they tried to make sure that that didn't happen, but I think it was just kind of unavoidable in that scenario. Yep. Um, but yeah. So was, you, so would, when you got into college, you were mainly alcohol and marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Did you progress to other drugs from there? Yeah. Um, you know, I started messing around with some cocaine, uh, and then I, I had done psychedelics along the way too, uh, mostly just mushrooms, but yeah. Uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, it was, you know, started dabbling with a little bit of cocaine and I, I moved out of Clemson. I kind of, you know, failed like spectacularly out of school. Um, So I I, kind of left town. I went and lived in Nicaragua for a while. I did some like humanitarian work down there just to kind of do a geographical shift because a lot of things were kind of unraveling and back home in Clemson. Um, But yeah, I went down there for six months and kind of had uh, once one of those life changing experiences, you know, I, kind of went down there solo. Um, my aunt and uncle have some connections down there. So I found this kind of church school place to work and, uh, get my, you know, room and board and stuff there and just got to travel around the the country uh, for about six months. And that was my first time. I would guess I was like 22, maybe 22, 23. And it was the first time I'd really gone out on my own like that. And it was a very, positive experience because from then on out I I kind of had this confidence in myself that I could really kind of get through get through anything and that really served me well you know down the road were you doing drugs while you were down in down in Nicaragua or uh I drank on the weekends um and I got into a little bit of cocaine while I was down there um but that that was about it but drank on the weekends okay so when you came back, what was your life like when you came back from Nicaragua? Uh, it was hectic. Um, it it not only didn't get better, it got, it got more stressful. 
um, you know, so, so some things happen in, in my personal life, which is a whole nother story that we could talk about on another podcast, <laughs> but, um, but the substance use was still there. It was, it just ramped up with what came along with all these other life stressors. Um, and then started playing music again. And that kind of actually really kind of went to the next level with my music. I, I met some people and we started playing in a band and we toured around with the Whalers, Bob Marley's band. Okay. And, you know, it's like not great success, but for a middle, a, you know, middle twenties person who's always wanted to tour with a big, big act. It was, it was awesome for me at the time. And that also kept me kind of grounded and kind of kept me, you know, as, as much as we did party, it was, there was an organization and a structure to it, you know, because we had to practice and we had to show up to these places on time. So it kind of kept things together a little bit. And that was about 2008, 2009. Okay. So what, what then got you to the point where you realized you had to change? Cause it sounds like life's doing okay. I mean, why stop? Why stop doing drugs and alcohol? Well, you're going yeah. okay, right? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't, I definitely wasn't ready to stop at that point because it was definitely still fun. Um, and then I guess, you know, 2009, I moved to Charleston, stayed there. And I remember I, I broke my hand. At, I can maybe, I guess, in the spring of 2010. And How'd I got you do that. I was in a fight with one of my girlfriends, like ex girlfriend, and I think I punched a door. Just one of those emotional, you know, 20 something year old reactions to, you know, fight with the girlfriend. <laughs> and, and you were a guitar player, yes? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. And so I woke up the next morning and my hand was huge. I went to the doctor, x rayed it, it was broken, and they wrote me a script of, I think, you know, 25 Percocet. And um, once I, once I ate those things, it was, it was over with, it was the thing I'd been looking for my whole life as far as substances goes, because alcohol just made me feel sick. It made me, you know, be out of control, made me throw up, made me hungover. Weed made me lazy, you know, kind of brain dead. And when I ate those Percocet, it was the I mean, it was that, uh, it was that warm embrace that I've been looking for in every drug that I've ever tried up in that point. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then, um, but it ran out, didn't it? Oh yeah. And then I called him again. I called that doctor again and said, Hey man, I'm having some really bad problems with this hand, you know? And that was the beginning of, of like being deceptful and deceitful and trying to figure out a way to keep this train going, you know, cause that's when the train really took off. And I moved to Florida, I moved to Orlando to go to recording art school at full sail university. Um, and I just, you know, I was, I wanted to do that. That's it's what I really wanted to do. Like before when I was in college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Just totally aimless. Um, this time I knew what I wanted to do, but I was so incapable because of how bad I was off on drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, this was the first, this, this, I, I was, I was handcuffed by this thing at that point because this is something that I wanted more than anything was to make music and be at recording art school and to get it. I mean, I did so many things to get myself enrolled in that school, you know, got a grant and, you know, got everything set up on my own to do that. And then I get down there and turns out they have a lot of drugs in Florida and, you know, I just, it was off to the races even more. Wow. Did you stick with painkillers or did you go down the the heroin route? Oh yeah, I went down all the the routes eventually. Um <laughs> while I was, while I was there in Florida, it was mostly um it was mostly just pills. 
uh, smoked methamphetamine for the first time down there when I was hunting alligators <clears throat> with a friend of mine. <laughs> Needless to say, that was quite an experience. It was, you know, 3 a.m. We're hunting these alligators and I'm all spun out on methamphetamine, not knowing what is real and what's not. You know, it was it was quite an evening. But I kind of stayed away from the meth after that for a while, but the the painkillers were, you know, started messing around with fentanyl patches. Um, and then in 2011. Let me just ask you, yeah. I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Go so you're it. getting painkillers from the doctor for your hand, but mm-hmm. you could play now, right? Mm, oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. okay. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I couldn't play for a little while. I think it was like six weeks before I could actually really do stuff again. Right. But I was calling that doctor for almost a year after that okay. first one. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're in full sale and you're there because that's really where you want to be. That's going to contribute to your career, but you got the drug thing going on. So what happened then with that whole program you were on? So I was there and um, I, I remember... I was dating somebody that lived in Charleston and I I went to visit her and I remember sitting in a parking lot on a Sunday after like a wild weekend of drinking and I was taking pills and um, I just remember sitting there on a Sunday just in this parking lot and I just felt so just broken and I knew something was wrong that this that what I was going through wasn't just normal. It wasn't something that I was going to grow out of on my own, which that was what I was kind of hoping was going to happen. Uh, I just, it was that moment of clarity that you hear about in, in recovery circles and stuff like that. It, I really felt that. I broke down to everyone that I was close with. I called my parents. I talked to the girlfriend I was with at the time. And I said, I need help. And I mean, I'm sure they were all just, just like, yeah, no duh, kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we they were probably, that. yeah, they're probably relieved, you know? Um, but we didn't really know much about this at all. If, I mean, we didn't really know anything. So we, we just kind of used the internet and the resources that were available to us to figure out where to go. And I went to a treatment center and it was the scariest thing I'd ever done back then. I was so worried that all these people were going to find out all the terrible things that I had done or thought about in my life. You know, I was so afraid of just being exposed for the rotten person that I felt like I was at the time, Mm -hmm. you know? So it was, it was terrifying. I mean, I've, I've endured way more things that should be scarier than that. (laughs) But that was like alligators at 3 a.m. in Florida looking for alligators. Okay. Yeah. Just, that's scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> well, like just even jail, like going to jail. And like that was nothing compared to that first time walking into rehab. You kind of glossed over that. You didn't mention to us that you've oh, been in jail. It's coming in this. It's coming. Oh, yeah. oh okay. All right. Fair I, enough. I had been arrested for public disorderly uh, stuff you know, prior to going to Orlando, but just like drunk, rambunctious college boy stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I walked into that treatment center and, you know, it wasn't that bad. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> die or get murdered or anything. So, you know, I, I really saw the, the merit in, in being there, but I wasn't committed. I, I was there looking at the differences. I was like, this guy next to me, you know, smoked crack a bunch. The other guy next to me had just committed, uh, robbed two banks in the Atlanta area because of his habit. And I was like, I'm not, the, I'm not as bad as these people. Hmm. So I did, I just kind of did the minimum. I did the inpatient six weeks and they were trying to tell me to go to sober living, trying to tell me to, um, you know, do all this aftercare stuff. And I just felt like I had it licked. I felt amazing. It was the best I've felt in years. I thought I was good to go. And, you know, my brother, he's the only really one in our family that 
kind of knew what we were dealing with because he 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 told my mom. I found this out later. He told my mom. He's like, Britt doesn't realize that this is going to be something that he's going to work with the rest of his life. And you know, I'd never had thought about it like that. And you know, he was right eventually. And but I left and you know went back to Orlando. I moved into this like condo in downtown Orlando. You know, things were great. Like I, I was, you know, it was about, it had been about a week since I had gotten out. And, you know, I, I was like, I remember thinking to myself, you know, this, this moving in, I was putting together some Ikea furniture in this condo one night. And I was like, this furniture putting together process would be so much better if I just had, you know, a six pack of beer. And I went down to the store and got a six pack of Coors Light. And while I was unpacking, I found, I think it was two or three old Xanax bars just in the bottom of my medicine cabinet stuff. And of course I had, I had probably two beers by then. So I just popped them in, not even thinking about it. And my tolerance, I had no tolerance at that point. Um, Next thing I know, I went to a strip club down the street, bought a bottle of Johnny Walker and the next thing I know, I woke up handcuffed to a bed with massive gash in my head, two of my friends standing by the bed and like a police officer outside the door of the, of the hospital room. And I'll never forget my friend's, my friend's facial expression when I woke up. I, I've, you know, I woke up and I see them and they had, it was this, my, my friend and his girlfriend, I had been living with them before I moved to that condo, but their face was, I've, I've never, it was this weird, you know, composite of just fear, you know, shame, regret, like all the, there's just all these <laughs> pity and anger. It was just this weird, I'll never forget their facial expressions, but I, I asked what happened. They said, you were being chased by the police and you ran into a street sleeper and you, your head went through the windshield of your car. Wow. And, you know, I had no idea. I was obviously very sore. Um, but if I could have, I was really out of it at that point, but I would imagine if I could have felt feelings, I would have, it would have been terrifying because I imagine if I would have woken up and they would have said, you've killed somebody, that would be, you know, one of the, that's got to be one of my biggest fears is that happening. Right. So, yeah, that was my, my first time in, my first time in real trouble, you know. Okay. So you had, you had your, the incident in the, um, the aha moment in the parking lot, that was before this, right? No, so- yeah, that was before, yeah. So now you've basically relapsed. What then happened to get you to stop? Oh, nothing. Uh, For a long time. Uh, My brother came down. I got out of jail after a couple days. You know, my mom came down and they bailed me out, which they always did back then. And um, I somehow, you know, I, I somehow convinced everyone that I kind of had it together and things were going to be okay. Like this is a big wake up call. So I'm going to stay down there. But really I just wanted to like stay down in this and in my place and just do whatever I wanted. You know, I wanted to get back to being, you know, this crazy wild man. You are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information on the podcast or to reach out. If you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohi.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. 
That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. But my brother came down one weekend and he, uh, I was in rough shape. You know, I met him at a restaurant or at a bar and he, when he got off the plane and he was with me all weekend. And by the time Sunday rolled around, he, he pretty much planted his flag and said, I'm not leaving until you get on a plane coming back to South Carolina with me. You know, he's like, you're going to kill yourself. And, you know, he saved my life that day. I didn't realize that I, I was extremely pissed and inconvenienced by this because I wanted to keep using um just freely but you know he was pretty firm about it and there was nothing i was going to do to change his mind so um i flew back to south carolina i got connected with the rehab that i had went to i got went to their sober living residence but i lasted all of maybe two weeks i got kicked out of the house for drinking and using um and just kind of floundered around for a few weeks and the, a couple friends of mine in Nashville, they were, you know, they were, they were doing their thing. They were both working in the restaurant industry, you know, doing well. And they had a house with an extra bedroom and they said, you know, you should come up here and enroll in this, this treatment center that's up here. And, you know, we'll kind of, be your sober living after you get out and you can do an outpatient program and live with us and just kind of get back on your feet. And it was one of the kindest gestures, you know, ever. And it was awesome. Um, but, you know, I went up there, a good friend of mine drove me up there, dropped me off. I went into the inpatient. It was a quick like two week program. And then I go to their outpatient because at this point I was still kind of bartering for my own recovery plan. I said, look, I'm not, I don't want to go in any inpatient for too long. You know, I don't want to be inconvenienced this much. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to lose three months or four months of my, you know, really flourishing life right now. You know, like I was being very, I don't know, difficult to negotiate with, but so that I, I did that and I was living in Nashville not committed to any, not committed to recovery at all. I mean, I was still that person that like, wow, I, this is Nashville. Like I want to go out and experience Nashville and, you know, get to know people and, and live my life. And that, that same little, little kid that really liked to go out and just explore everything, you know, that little kid was still there. It's just, the stakes were so much bigger now. And um, I went out one night and, got connected to these people that, you know, I thought they were just smoking weed. They're like, you know, you want to go back, we're going to smoke at our place. And I said, okay, you know, sounds good. And I went, went back there and then they ended up, they were smoking methamphetamine and, you know, I've been drinking and there was really no reason. I, I mean, it's not like I wasn't enrolled in outpatient you know, the next day, you know, or anything like that. So I figured it was a good idea to, to hit the meth bowl and, that was, you know, talk about off to the races after that. It was a three-week bender of I ended up, you know, getting with these people that were trafficking methamphetamine from Atlanta to Nashville and just really – I was on probation for all the stuff that had happened in Florida. Right. Just uh, being really reckless and, um, you know, kind of went into this dark, darker place for, you know – you know, two or three weeks. And eventually I kind of snapped myself out of it and kind of escaped essentially um, from that situation and then flew back to, back to South Carolina. Yeah. I sufficiently, you know, scared my friends to death 
and and they they quickly realized that they were that that they were not prepared to handle you know the problems that I was kind of dealing with at that point. So I came back to South Carolina and actually started playing music again. Hmm. And things were it was a, another instance where it was really grounding. We were playing a lot of shows, uh, and you know things were happening, and it was it felt really good. Um, but I mean the that that curve was just as far as much substance use, it just kept going up at a steeper and steeper rate. Um, because at this point I, I had really experimented with every single drug in the book and I knew that the harder ones were going to give me the effects that I wanted more. So like the stakes were just going up. I was shooting drugs at this point and um, you know, I, for, I had my first like really bad experiences with uh with opiate withdrawal and i didn't even know what that was until after i'd already been sick for the first time i thought i you know had this horrible flu yep um but and then i finally and i did some reading and realized i like what this was um and you know i i, I got another dui um at, during that time I got picked up for a, I think it was a failure to use a taillight, but I had not done anything with that probation in Florida from that, from that, uh, that chase, that police chase. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done anything in almost two years. So there was a nationwide warrant out for my arrest. It was one of those things where I just pretended that if I didn't think about it or didn't acknowledge it, it would just go away. (laughs) <laughs> just kind of running from my problems. But yeah, it turns out it didn't really run away. Uh, it just got worse. So <laughs> I remember, yeah, I got, I got picked up and I sat in jail for a few weeks in Charleston and the judge um, hit me with a $2 million bond. Wow. Yeah. I remember that happening and just kind of laughing at the, at the situation I found myself in at that point because I had no idea how I was going to get come up with any sort of money like that. Um, but my friend, I, my friend of mine, he's an attorney down in Charleston. He connected me with a really good defense lawyer. And, um, so he got that bond reduced under the condition that I would go turn myself in in Florida, which, which I did, which was, a whole, I had to go stay. I stayed in jail in Florida for, you know, about 90 days and I had a seizure in jail and, saw some other crazy stuff and that was no fun. Um, but got out of there. And the first, first thing I, I mean, I had learned of this heroin dealing spot in in Orlando, that's where I was in jail. And as soon as I got out, I got the taxi driver to take me straight there. Um, okay. you know, I had like 90 days to think about everything that had happened. And that's the first thing that I did, you know, that just shows you the power of, of the kind of disease that we're dealing with. Yep. So I'm back to my question. So somewhere you got clean and sober, because I know you've been clean and sober since 2015. So what led to that? What was the wake up call that finally got you to that point? Yeah. After I got back, um, I gotten into a bad car wreck with a friend of mine and he got really hurt. Um, So I was, 30-something years old, living in my parents' basement in Clemson, South Carolina. I was riding my bike to the ATM or to whatever way that I could get enough money. Um, and I was shooting about $300 worth of heroin a day. Wow. So any way I could come up with that money, I would do that. And, you know, I really what got it was I got to a point where – I was doing it obviously to just feel not sick, you know, getting high from it had gone a long time ago, but I got to a point where I was, I would do a massive amount and I would still be sick. Like it wasn't even getting me well anymore, Hmm. which that to me, I was like, all right, I didn't sign up for this. Like I'm not even getting any sort of relief from any of this like hell that I'm living in. And I remember that was it. And I remember calling, I went to the first treatment center I had gone to. There had been, this is the fifth time I was going to treatment by that point. And I called them and I said, 
I was waving my white flag. I said, I'll do anything. I was like, I'll stay as long as you tell me to stay. My dad drove me up there. I did my last, my last shot, like July, I think it was July 17th, 2015. Cause like July 18th was the day. It was the first day I, I didn't use anything. Um, I took him, he took me up there and I said, you know, if I come calling you, if I get kicked out of here, you can't answer the phone. And he, he agreed 100%. He said, yeah, this, you're on your own. This is it. And I, I just, I, I stuck it out and, you know, I just completely let go of anything that I thought I knew or thought that I needed to do for myself. I just totally gave it to the hands of strangers essentially. Um, but you know, there were strangers that knew much better than I did at that point. Right. And so I stayed there for seven months. Um, I was in a monitoring program for a year after that. So I was in some sort of treatment or accountability setting, you know, for about 18 months and 18 months is I got, so I was enrolled back in school at Clemson. I was studying philosophy and psychology. Um, I did that for a year after I, I had been at the treatment center. And then I circled back around and I wanted to move to Asheville uh, the summer of 2017 because um, I've been living in Clemson and there's just not much for a sober 32-year-old man to do in a college town. So I wanted to get out and live in Asheville and that's where the treatment center was. So I worked there uh, that summer with their young men's extended care program. And that those were just really big pivotal moments where I could actually go and hold down a job and be immersed in recovery and kind of live in the life that I wanted to live for the first time, uh, kind of following my intuitions and my heart, like, you know, one the feeling that call to move to Asheville and, and kind of listening to that and, and following that path. And uh, I worked there for a year while I was in school at Clemson, I would work, I would go to, I would go to class. Um, I'd move back from Asheville at the end of the summer I, and I would go to class during the week. And on the weekends, I would travel up to the treatment center and stay there over the weekend with the, with the young men. And that was a really good schedule for me. Uh, over, over the course of, you know, finishing up college and getting my degree. Uh, 2018, um, I had an opportunity to travel to Asia to study in China with a group from Clemson. Wow. And I had been really wanting to travel in that part of the world. I had never been there. I, I've been to some other, you know, continents, but never been to Asia. Uh, but it's another instance of where I kind of listened listen to my intuition kind of had that voice inside of me telling me, Hey, you should check out Vietnam while you're there. And I ended up getting on a motorcycle after the class was over in Beijing. I, I got on a plane from Beijing to Hanoi. And then I got on a motorcycle and rode, uh, rode motorbikes through the mountains and jungles of Vietnam for two weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, just, it was just amazing. And that was another one of those things where, you know, that's the first time I'd traveled on my own, especially out of the country, especially for that long. Uh, I'm sure there were some people back home who were kind of worried and anxious about that, especially considering to the country where I was going. I mean, they, they have a lot of heroin in Vietnam. Um, yep. But, you know, those, that, those kind of moments just kind of kept me confident that I was on the right path. And, yeah. You know, you know I want to, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to make a point here because I think that, you know, uh, typically uh, a lot of people go into rehab and it's maybe a 30 day program because that's all that insurance will pay for. Mm -hmm. And I think your story is particularly relevant. There is no quick fix for addiction. There just isn't. There's all of the different aspects of it. The physical addiction, the mental addiction, and then the whole spiritual problem that occurs before and after addiction. And it, it, it isn't, there's no quick fix for it. And I think your story is particularly relevant because you basically spent a year, not, not only just yourself doing your treatment, but also helping others in treatment. And you're still doing that today. Tell us what you're doing today. 
Yeah, uh, today I work for um, an organization here called Favor Greenville. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization that we deal mostly with community-based services for substance use and mental health issues. Uh, one of those services is we have a full-time staff member in the emergency room at the main hospital here. Uh, so when somebody comes into the emergency room, the providers and the nurses are trained to screen for substance use disorder. And any patient that may or may make that might be at risk of substance use disorder, uh, I'm notified. I go in or whoever's working that day. Uh, I go in and introduce myself and see as a, as some, as a person in long-term recovery. And I just see how we might be able to help them on that, that path to trying to make life a little better for them. Got it. And what, and this is kind of sort of how I end the interviews typically, as I say, you know, what would you, if you had one message to say to someone, what would it be? But you're in the you're in the position where you do that on a regular basis. What is it? What is it that you tell somebody that quite obviously is addicted and is going to need help? What do you tell them in an effort to spur them to get help? I the main thing that I try to convey is that there is nothing wrong with them. That they are sick people. That what they're dealing with is mental illness, um, and that it's nothing to be ashamed of. And the fact that they're willing to talk to me is a huge indication that they want to do better and that they, that they are better, that they aren't, they aren't just this manipulative, you know, shady, you know, person. They're actually really good people that are torn apart by this conflict inside of them that, is making them do all these things that are against their, their nature and their character. So I just try to show the difference that this side of you is a very sick person. It's just a sick, it's just like any other illness. And cause somebody told that to me and I, and I really kind of took that to heart and it helped me to explain all the crazy things that I had done against my character while I was using. Right. So I really try to, you know, because there's not a magical thing you can say to somebody, but exactly. letting them know that they're not bad, you know? Yep. And also they're not alone. There's other people oh, who've yeah. been through it and there's people they can talk to. Changing the subject um, quite radically, but yeah. you are a musician, you're mm -hmm. making music, mm -hmm. you have a new album, they call them EPs now, I guess. You have a new EP that's out. Mm -hmm. Tell a little bit about it and how people can get it. Yeah, I. Uh, I was so going to make you play a song, but I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would need a heads up for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I something I've always wanted to do is be a music producer. Like that's why I went to Full Sail, and um, so th that had been calling my name for pretty much my whole life. But I, uh, you know, over the years, especially once I got into recovery, I could actually save some money and be able to start getting some of the gear that I would need to make some music on my own. Uh, and eventually in the September of last year, I moved into this house that I'm at now. Like I've got this studio space built here. Like, I don't know if you can probably see it. I stuff. can, I can see all of the, the buffering things to help with the echo and stuff. Yeah. Yep. Um, so finally, I, you know, I got all that together and uh, when I moved in here September and so I started making music then with the intention of putting out an album and uh covid hit in march and i we couldn't go to the emergency room for like six months so i was at home working from home and i had this studio which i was already working in but it just accelerated the timetable of getting the album out uh it's a five song ep it's titled trust, trust. uh you can get it on yeah I, I perform under the name catch the rise okay catch the rise three yep. words and um, yeah, it's, it's like a electronic down tempo kind of stuff. You know, people say it sounds like Tycho. He's a big musical influence of mine. Uh, you know, some bass nectar kind of sounds in there, other like lane eight explosions in the sky, stuff like that. So it's available on online, like on yeah, Spotify and services like that. Yeah. All the basic streaming services. I mean, there's like 28 that it's on. So 
awesome. if you have a streaming service, you most likely can get it. Awesome. But there's a, there's a video on YouTube too, that kind of talks about some of the things that we've been talking about as far as, you know, getting on that trip to Vietnam and um, kind of the, the origins of all this music stuff. That's great. That's awesome. Well, I wish you huge amounts of success with your music. Thank and you. also I want to thank you for all the work you're doing in the ER. I know it's very helpful to people there who are struggling with addiction. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's an honor to be on. I really appreciate you having me on. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed our interview for this week. And we, of course, will be back again next week with another interview. I wanted to just share something with you. Oftentimes people ask us, why do we do this podcast? Why, you know, do we know somebody or is one of our family members addicted? And the answer to that is no. I am a mother. And if you've watched any of the interviews I've done with moms, it's very, very hard for me to listen to a mom who has lost a child to addiction. It breaks my heart. I lost a friend of mine two weeks ago, not to addiction, but it was very sudden. He was in his 40s, massive heart attack, passed away. It was such a shock. And I thought about the people who have lost someone to addiction. And sometimes maybe you're somewhat not prepared for it, but you sort of expect it if you know that your loved one is addicted to hard drugs because it can more often than not be what happens when someone's addicted to drugs. But it's still sudden when it happens. It's still a huge loss when it happens. And the reason why we, my husband and I, do this podcast is because we don't want anyone to lose someone they love to addiction. And I know that's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year, but we keep feeling if we continue to do this and if we continue to interview people who are doing something about the problem, that eventually it will either go away or greatly lessen. And that is our message of hope and help. So check out Brit's music if you can on um, you know any of the streaming music. He goes under the name of Catch the Rise and the album is Trust. We will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.